Hello, I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Neil Miller. And I'm Dave Gonzalez, and we're ostensibly friends who've been podcasting together for almost a decade. We survived the long night covering HBO's Game of Thrones and spent our pandemic lockdown evaluating the ABC series Lost, and now we're embarking on our most important journey yet, debating pop culture's most pressing questions. Each week, we'll come to the ultimate conclusion to a question like, who's the best Batman villain? What's the best legacy sequel of all time? Is a hot dog a sandwich? No, we're not debating if a hot dog is a sandwich. Because everybody knows it is a sandwich, and we could all agree. That doesn't sound right. Just like reading Rainbow of Old, you don't have to take our word for it, as each episode ends with four nominees in a listener poll to decide the final superlative. What's the best chili bean? No! Dave, are you just hungry? That's debatable, Neil. Find Trial by Content, Tuesdays on Spotify, TheRinger.com, or wherever you're listening right now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions all apply. See website for details. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me from his Pat Riley garage, it's Andy Greenwald! Chris, you joke, but you know, (laughs) you're talking about the HBO show Winning Time featuring Adrian Brody. Yeah. Longtime favorite of this podcast as legendary coach before he was then, before he was a coach, Pat Riley. Pat Riley, meant to be 34 years old in those scenes where he demolishes his garage because of bad memories of his dad. That's right. Adrian Brody, basically at the half century mark, the same age Pat Riley was when he coasted down to Miami to take over so the reins of that Riley franchise. Pat Riley was my age when I joined Grantland. Yeah, it's a similar trajectory. Interesting. Yeah, Chris, you you <laughs> joining about, Grantland as a part-time to... soccer columnist is very similar to Pat Riley being like, "I'll just be the color guy on radio broadcasts." Yeah, right. And then I, I got I got to do my best work in my forties, and and mm-hmm. and all do do praise to you for that, Andy. You've really helped me find a new level. Uh, in my twilight years. Andy, today on the Watch Podcast, we're going to be talking about a number of TV shows. We got uh, a little bit of Severance, a little bit of Winning Time, and a little bit of Top Chef. I wanted to start off by saying hello and how are you uh, to this weekend. You know, it was funny. We did that whole Thursday rundown 
mm-hmm. where we kind of like robotically ran through the 25 shows that are coming out in the next six weeks and of course managed to miss, I'd say, half a dozen of them. A few just popped up out of like, I watched the first episode of Mr. Mayor season two this weekend. Me Delightful. too. So it, it is maybe like the most perfect facsimile if you just took the sensibility of 30 Rock and changed what? all the jokes to LA jokes. It was amazing. Well, Tina Fey wrote the season premiere. And here's the thing, guys. I know that we've moved on collectively, <laughs> culturally, whatever. But yo, she's so funny. <laughs> she just writes the funniest scripts and jokes. There's a bit. It's really wild. The, the whole opening bit of the episode, not to give it away, but whatever. It's all the, the idea of LA Christmas Eve. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Okay, couple things. That's not the season premiere you watched. That was the Christmas special that's been up since December. Also oh. very funny. <laughs> But that's just the life being of being a Peacock fan, right? Like that's right. The content, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> it just appears. But I, I, I don't want to step on what yeah, you were going to say. I, I think, you and I are just huge cock fans. You know, as our interview with James Johnson proved. Great call. We love LeCock. Great call. Um, Chris, I think that you should go ahead and talk about it because I think many people don't realize that the Ted Danson comedy, Mr. Mayor, created by Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, is back for season two and yes. it's super funny. But I also just want to call out you and celebrate you for gingerly stepping up to the precipice of talking about season two of Mr. Mayor as if it reveals who's inside the hatch. <laughs> I know, I know. We're going to find out who what's really behind Lumen Industries. <laughs> so go ahead, spoil the Christmas special it of Mr. Mayor. It doesn't matter. My point was more that Mr. Mayor came back. We didn't mention that. Uh, Top Boy season two premiered on Friday on Netflix. I don't know if we've ever really talked about that, but that's a no. personal pet project of mine is just talking about how I, I sell my food in this manner, you know, when, when, I'm, when I'm watching Top Boy. It, I'm it, not going to do the accent. Explain but, Top Top Boy, though, because that's a thing that is a big thing, a big yeah. thing to many people, but Top not Boy to is others. is a English t- drug dealing drama that premiered like 10 years ago. And it was about these younger dealers uh, in, in London and then went away for a while, but then piqued the interest of Drake, among other people, mm-hmm. who got involved with bringing the show back. So now you can find the earlier seasons on Netflix under the title Summer House, which is the name of the, the public housing that they work out of for a, l- a large part of the show. And then the new seasons are called Top Boy. And it's just like extremely well done and compelling. My guy Kano is on it, and it is just a really, really, really great actor. But the first season ended on like this huge twist and the second season is sort of grappling with that. So it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Uh, so <laughs> did, Top Boy came back, Mr. Did, Mayor did Chris, came back. Did we ever talk on this podcast about how the Top Boy director, Yann Demange, was briefly the director of Briarpatch? I mean, we talked about it a lot on the <laughs> podcast that is our life. Yeah. And just, it was worth it. He's a super talented guy and it was, it all worked out for everyone. But meeting him, at Go Get Him Tiger on Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> and him being like, look, bruv, here's the thing, bruv. It's noir in it. It's noir. It's got to be red in it, bruv. It's got to be all red. The screen light, right, is red, bruv. And did Massive. You, were you just like, I'm talking to fucking Scorsese here. I love it. Let's go full red. I was just like, I just had like, a paralyzed rictus grin on my face. Yeah. Like in the same way, you know, the face that you make when, if you ever had the situation, like maybe you studied a language in school, uh-huh. you know, like maybe you studied French or, or Spanish and then you go to the country where they speak it and you want to hang. And then like two sentences in, you realize you're still on the first thing they said. 
That was my experience speaking English. That was me four days into being in Italy. I was just like, I got this. It's a romance language. I can just let it rip. (laughs) Oh, you know, that was the, uh, that was the, my dad strategy of going to Italy, which was, I took Spanish in high school 60 years ago. Yeah. So he just shouted. Basic principles. Yeah. 1950s Spanish at Italian men on the side of the road. (laughs) Went great. Went great. Um, you know, and I also checked out, uh, I, I'd seen some of the screeners, but I, I, do you have any interest in Life and Beth, the Amy Schumer show? You know, put that in the bin of things that are interesting. Yes, I have not pursued it, though. Uh, I will say that when Michael Sarah makes his appearance on this show, uh, it's 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 quite good. But yeah, other than that, like, you know, just kicked it this weekend. Just played a little <laughs> golf on Friday. Watch the Chris, new... Sorry, ahead. did... Is industry coming out in the next six weeks? Because it would be incredible if for the second straight we list stuff pod, we just erased. What what if we did an episode of The Watch that was all about our most anticipated British exports and and it was like Top Boy and, you know, whatever, like great American. Cadbury cream eggs. Yeah, yeah. Is that a cream? Is that a cream egg, bruv? Here is The Watch's top five. Drama set in the British financial markets. Right. And we didn't I, include industry. Everybody knows that we can't wait for industry. Sorry, Mickey and Conrad. We're ready. Um, we're ready. So, well, you want to get into, like, we, we teased this last week, and I'm sure everybody's mm-hmm. been spending the entire weekend waiting for us to address it, about talking about this Obi-Wan Kenobi story that came out in The Hollywood Reporter last week. And at the end of Thursday's pod, Andy mentioned it, and we said we were going to talk about it. So, yeah. there was this piece that came out. Obi-Wan, obviously, the trailer dropped. People are freaking out. And... The Hollywood Reporter wrote a, what I would call a typical kind of story. Agreed. Especially for a pre-release. It was essentially like the kind of thing you might read once the show is aired and people have digested it. And then it's like, here's some of the back behind the scenes maneuvering that happened for Mandalorian or for whatever. And this piece was written by Boris Kitt and uh, Aaron Couch. And uh, it's rare that you see something like this beforehand. Essentially, the story goes like this. I mean, the money money part of the story is this. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm reading from the Hollywood Reporter's uh, piece on Obi-Wan. Hossein Amini, who uh, people may know as the screenwriter of Drive, was the original writer who worked with the director, Deborah Chow, on the six-episode series, Obi-Wan. And while it was reported that pre-production paused in early 2020 because Lucasfilm was unhappy with the scripts, the reasoning behind the pause was a little more layered. According to sources, Chow showed the scripts to Star Wars stewards, interesting phrasing there, Dave Filoni and John Favreau, who were coming off the success of Mandalorian, freshly launched in November of 2019, and deep into work on season two. Sources note that Filoni and Favreau were concerned about Obi-Wan covering similar ground as Mandalorian, the lone wolf and cub-like story of Kenobi coming out of hiding to protect a child-aged Luke Skywalker. Uh, Darth Maul was one of the villains who would participate in the hunt for the pair. Vader was nowhere to be found in this faraway galaxy at this stage, according to those who had knowledge of the project. Also, Filoni and Favreau pushed Chow and the show to, quote, go bigger, according to several sources. In any case, those concerns made their way to Lucasfilm head Kathleen Kennedy, who paused, who pressed the pause button, and Joby Harold was eventually hired as the show's new writer. So... I, first of all, I agree with you. We don't see pieces like this very much anymore. Generally, we see similarly specifically phrased pieces like this in the aftermath of failure Mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, when a movie bombs or a TV show gets canceled. That's when you kind of get some of this stuff. It is very rare in today's highly manicured Hollywood 
to get this kind of detail about something that we don't even know the details of. We don't even know the details of what made it onto the screen because mm-hmm. we haven't seen the show yet. So I think that's noteworthy and interesting and I'm very curious about uh, whose agendas are being pushed here. Um, the second most interesting thing for me in the language was Deborah Chow showed it to Favreau and Filoni. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Deborah Chow, uh, highly respected filmmaker, directed Obi-Wan. Has, I, I believe she directed episodes of The Mandalorian, too, which Two was her them, yeah. entry into the, into the Star Wars universe. The language suggests that she f- was freelancing when she showed the scripts to her work colleagues, Favreau and Filoni. And then their comments made their way to Kathy Kennedy. That strikes me as odd, um, unless they really are doing something over at Lucasfilm like they used to do at Pixar, when everybody just sits in a big room and kicks the ideas around until they're golden. I don't think that's what they're doing. So I, I'd love to know. That's my first sort of inflection point where I'd like to know more about it. Was Deborah Chow just like good faith, like, hey, guys, you really understand what's going on here. I'd love to get your eyes on this. Uh, or was she like, I'm not sure I'm satisfied with this. Or did she just, as a friend, show them something, and then they flipped out, and they were like, you can't do this because we control this part well, of the Well, presumably, playground. I mean, the Lone Wolf and Cub stuff is baked into the first episode of The Mandalorian, right? Like, yeah. it's the, when he takes stewardship of the child, and it's obviously he's going to be protecting this baby Yoda figure throughout the, the at least the first season, and then it turns into the, for the most part, the, the entire series up to date, up until the last episode of the second season. I thought it was really interesting that they kind of defined Filoni and Favreau as the keepers of the Star Wars, uh, I don't know, Yep. Like, like flame. You know, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation a little bit more generally is just like, I find it fascinating when you have these large pieces of intellectual property, whether it's Lord of the Rings or the Game of Thrones extended universe, Marvel, Star Wars, everybody's got a different way of doing things. Kevin Feige obviously has kind of positioned himself as this like Selznick figure overseeing everything that is filmed mm-hmm. Marvel content. Mm-hmm. But then you've got situations where there isn't a figurehead really for Star Wars. I think at times it was J.J. Abrams, at times it's been Kathleen Kennedy. I'm sure ultimately Kathleen Kennedy is like got in a tremendous amount of like say over what happens but when it comes to the creative execution of those things is it these two guys who are working on a couple of shows or is it the next filmmaker i mean obviously there were some reports about damon lindelof stepping in to uh work on yeah but honestly like this conversation isn't limited to the more nerd culture stuff because we also saw i just want to jump in and say I know we have listeners at lucasfilm and at the lindelof household so if you guys want to get together and announce anything this is a very safe space for that. Is that fair? <laughs> but, this is this, yeah. please, please come on the pod. But I, I thought that I this this conversation or this idea kind of hit me again on Friday or whenever it was announced that Issa Lopez and Barry Jenkins were going to be moving ahead with developing a fourth season of True Detective, seemingly without the involvement of Nick Pizzolatto, who mm-hmm. is very, very, very much the author of True Detective. I mean, his sensibility, his worldview, his language permeates every single line and every single frame of that show, no matter who's directing it, whether it's Fukunaga or Jeremy Saulnier or whoever. So it, it is kind of fascinating as this stuff, if, no, if nothing other really dies, to see the kind of changing of the guards of who is kind of the person in charge of it and also like what their sensibilities wind up doing to uh, other properties, like other shows. So, so how much Mandalorian, how much gangster western is going to be an Obi-Wan. 
you know, I, I think obviously Obi-Wan opens with the Tatooine stuff and we see a lot of desert planet stuff. There's also some Blade Runner-y noir stuff in there. Mm-hmm. I had heard like a long time ago that Obi-Wan was more of a detective show, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's, I mean, in, in some ways it's like, do you want it to be less like the Mandalorian or do you want it to be as much like the Mandalorian as possible to create a continuity and a familiarity? Well, one thing that strikes me as possible from what you just said is that that it's a detective show because if there's one thing that Lucasfilm across um, across 10 years of leadership has proven, it's that they are committed to not showing Obi-Wan Kenobi as a kick-ass cool Jedi warrior. Either tax collector or detective or old man in retirement right. enjoying some warm sands. Never, never show him at his peak. That's how you win. Um, to your point, I feel like there remains, there's just two two different ways to have this conversation. Um, One is, broadly speaking, Favreau and Filoni were correct to flag Obi-Wan as being potentially problematic if they're already doing a show about uh, someone who doesn't necessarily want the job of child protector doing childcare on and around Tatooine. Like, that would be insane to make two of the, so far to date, three Star Wars shows about the exact same topic. I never thought about it, but I have a lot in common with some heroes of Star Wars in that regard. (laughs) That <laughs> you are a reluctant caregiver to children, <laughs> you just want to be you just want to be left alone making credits. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> so do you do you, Chris, look at the Mandalorian and Obi Wan as like child free by choice? Like that's right. Like they don't want to be tied down. They want to travel. They don't want to have to worry <laughs> about that stuff. That's you know? the thing. Um, so I, I think that's a legitimate point to have been made here, but. The other way to look at this is how are we, the way that you're approaching it, I think, which is how are we managing this beloved sprawling franchise if we are basically letting the, it's like we're letting the guys who scored 50 points last night not just coach the team, but be general managers and also own the team now. Is that a LeBron thing? Um, Yeah. Yes, that's me taking shots at LeBron. (laughs) Let's put that on. Put that on the locker room. I'm sorry, you're talking and I just can't get over like the vision of Mandalorian like dropping everything because he got a Noma reservation for next week. Because he can? Yeah. Because because he doesn't have to arrange for like down by this a babysitter. fucking Yoda anymore. He can just go. <laughs> Is the Noma of Star Wars on the squid planet that we've already seen where they just harvest everything from the ocean fresh? I think if there was a Noma in the Star Wars universe, it would be on Endor. On Endor, oh, yeah. oh, because of all of the pine needles, yeah, the foraging. And it's it's a l- really lush, uh, let me, fertile foraging. At, like, let ground. me ex- let me explain that this course is a celebration of the Ewok food gathering culture and foodways, <laughs> the pathways. And, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I would I would make a reservation there, but unfortunately, I would have to arrange childcare. So. Incredibly jealous Sucks of this, for you. <laughs> this scenario. I hope you and I hope you and uh, Jin, whatever his name is, have fun. Um, <laughs> so a little bit about how we do things here. <laughs> will, you, will you at least Instagram your meal so I can have FOMO? Sure. Or no actual mo, just missing out. Um, no, but I just just the sense that like I can't tell if this is um, a genuine concern, a concern troll, or just the part of me that that sometimes twitches like that big hairy guy in Revenge of the Nerds sometimes when I just feel o- the fandom. What was yeah. his name? Bluto, Ogre, Ogre whatever. Ogre. Yeah, like taking yeah. over. Because the other piece of the article is just like, Filoni was like, don't do this. Do something completely different, but also use this villain from my cartoon, mm-hmm. which they did. And 
I feel frustrated by that. I can't help it. I feel frustrated by it because, you know, you and I always beat the drum for like, can we please do something in this universe past the Skywalkers? Now, an Obi-Wan series is never going to be past the Skywalkers. It's literally right set. It, it, it is the Skywalker story, just kind of like the, the intermission from the part we saw in the movies. I get that. I get that. But to not only have to service the pre-existing Skywalker canon fandom, but now to have grabbed the reins of this television project and make it basically a celebration that is in complete thrall to the cartoon shows feels also creatively suffocating to me as someone who admittedly did not watch the cartoon shows, which apparently are amazing. And I believe that they may well be. But that just feels feels like a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You brought up Feige and the Feige thing remains totally unique because yeah, he is the exception he, that proves the rule. He enacted his vision from jump. You know, he didn't inherit a messy thing and try to like put order around chaos. He has been, and you know, now you could argue perhaps he's become he's been too controlling and we'll see how that works out. But yeah, Star Wars has never had that figure creatively. And it is a worrying sign, frankly, that this show that I think we have been talking about as if it will be a okay, now let's see what the other half of the brain trust can do is really still being run through the Mandalorian shop. What did you think of the True Detective news? I thought it was great. I mean, you know I thought it was great because I have, I I don't know if it's been successful, but have attempted to walk a very, very delicate tightrope these last many years of loving the idea of the project, but not so often loving the project. Being, Being my friend while also not liking True Detective is a tough tough order. Let's let's make this personal and I agree with you. Um so the thought of taking on this mantle that this is a show about, you know, how police work can be all consuming and drive you crazy and also machismo and then handing it to uh, a woman and a black man to take a spin with, like that seems awesome to me. Did I'm also very I I'm here for Barry Jenkins' media impresario. Like I it doesn't say anything about him directing it. No, but he's going to be executive producer. And Issa Lopez did a 2017 movie called Tigers Are Not Afraid. That's, that's really cool. I mean, I think it could be really good. I, there's there's really no uh, point to being like, what about Pizzolatto, though? Like, I, I think Nick Piz will, will, will turn up somewhere. It definitely felt like True Detective was a manifestation of all the things that he was interested in, both For sure. in terms of like a worldview and the reference points and all the things that he kind of gathered, whether it was like the Lovecraftian stuff or the cultish, you know, conspiracy theory stuff intertwining that I kind of, I, I, I remain a huge fan of season three and feel like mm-hmm. probably in the pit, Nick Pizzolatto uh, trajectory, the next season would be the, dr- the dream season would be something that connected a couple of one and three or whatever, like that there would be some sort of connective tissue and maybe there would be like an even grander conspiracy that unites some of the stories that he's told. But, you know, I think Issa Lopez and Barry Jenkins doing it will be awesome. It's just kind of a, um, it kind of says where we are, where instead of just Issa Lopez and Barry Jenkins are going to do a crime show, it's like, well, what could we find that we have that they could kind of build off of? I agree to a point, but I would also say that season three, which I also had a lot of time for, um, did a lot of good work in terms of the housekeeping of the project, which was definitely not Pizzolatto's goal. I think you're exactly right that he threw in some Easter eggy type things, suggesting that there was a united vision behind all of this. And maybe if given well, the chance, it was just he would also the timeline us. stuff would suggest that some of this stuff was happening, yeah. you know, parallel to one another. But I think that season three did some of the tidying 
that would lead to this season four in someone else's hands. More, what I mean by that is it kind of reframed True Detective, not necessarily as a Nick Pizzolatto auteur project, which as you point out, it absolutely was, but rather as an occasionally returning event series on HBO that gives actors a chance to just act their socks off. Yeah. You know, like Mahershala Ali's performance in that is astonishing. Stephen Dorff, lightning in a bottle, apparently, like yeah. another one of those like... Really, where really I good, see, brief Scoot McNary performance, yeah. I didn't see that coming for someone like Stephen Dorff. I don't think he saw it coming. And since then, it hasn't happened again. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was really a knockout. And, you know, just a kind of a head trip, all-consuming for a limited amount of time cop show. And there's a lot of room for that on the air today. And it's, I think it has value for HBO. I, I think it's worth noting also that... Um, that Casey Bloys, who's in charge of HBO programming, you know, has gone on the record and he his public comments are always significant because he doesn't make a ton of them. But he's been on the record saying that he's not really here for reboots for reboots sake. You know, and that's not where he sees the business or his business going. And so if this came out, it means it's a lot further along with a lot more um, institutional weight behind it than any of the other, like, oh, can we have seven feet under soon? You know, like, th- like this isn't just like speculation because they have to keep the plate spinning. They don't announce or let I mean, stuff This get is why I think to. that you and I, we, we, our early aughts reboot of Sex in the City, but guys who hang out at Mercury Lounge, it mm-hmm. still has, there's still some daylight there. What, not a ton of sex in that city, if I remember correctly, but definitely a lot of conversations about the discographies of obscure 70s bands. Yeah. So call us. Call us, Casey. <laughs> On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. My village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we got three shows we're going to talk about today. You want to do? Let's save Top Chef for last. You want to talk about Winning Time and, and Severance? Yeah, I thought we could have uh, maybe a little bit of a more general combo rather than um, well, f- especially for Winning Time. I'm glad Magic Johnson is returning from Michigan and is going to be more in the LA mix and you, thus uniting the sort of plot lines. I like how Winning Time is doing this sort of A B plot where it's like they've got Bus and they've got Magic as the two sort of pillars of the show, and then they have a lot of room to just let Rory Cochran be Jerry Tarkanian. I I really enjoy that. I have noticed a slight uptick over the last week or so, especially since episode two's depiction of Jerry West as um, a sweaty, uh, drinking, depressive hump monster. Um, There was a a guy named Arn Tellum who runs the Pistons and is a famous super agent, wrote a piece about the depiction of West and and his problems with it. I think Mark Stein, who's an NBA writer, weighed in being like, "What? Why they? Why are they doing Jerry West like this?" And then a couple of things after this last episode was like the depiction of Chick Hearn, uh, who, <laughs> if you've ever been to a Lakers game, the road outside of uh, what is now called the Crypto.com Arena is, I think, Chick Hearn Court. It's like Chick, Chick Hearn Way. It's weird, uh, you know. We we lobbied for that to be named Hollywood Prospectus Walk <laughs> because I believe that goes right along. Where both the Grantland offices and the LA Herbalife headquarters, <laughs> the LA Herbalife headquarters are there, you know. Yeah, and uh, so I mean, it, it, whether or not they're playing a little bit fast and loose, or whether it's that they're seemingly picking on certain historical figures, mm. you know, that's obviously a subject to debate. The thing that probably matters most is how much people are being entertained by the show. And uh, I was curious how, how you were feeling. Like, I, I I don't feel like I have the right perspective to answer that question because it could really like literally just be like an hour-long episode of them practicing and i'd probably be like this is probably this is pretty good for me as podcasting's foremost defender of chick hearn's legacy chris has recused (laughs) himself from this conversation i think you 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 just said it best this show pound for pound is more entertaining than most shows on tv um certainly at the moment for me you do think that i think the show's super entertaining I am so excited to watch a new episode of it weekly. I haven't watched ahead, although I think we have screeners. I look forward to it. No second screening. No looking at the clock or doing the thing that now people in my household are aware of that I do, which is like, quote, accidentally touch the Apple TV remote so it reveals that there's 41 minutes left. Like, I I don't do that with this show. Um, I, I had to give up that it was an accident a while ago, but now I just don't do it at all. It's incredibly entertaining. And I'm curious about why I find this so entertaining at a moment when I'm finding all of the other real life tales of TV so absolutely not entertaining or essential. Um, We've talked the last few weeks about just the money, the production expense of the show, like how everything looks great and there's just a phenomenal actor in almost every supporting role and how that really elevates it. That's all true. But I was wondering if it was just the way they are just they are playing a Jerry Tarkanian offense with the facts, right? They are just playing super fast, super loose um, in a way that I am actually here for. Now, again, I am not the grandson of Chick Hearn. You know what I mean? Sure. I 
I am not Pat Riley's garage. I don't, I can't tell you the way it really went Yeah, if went they made down. a show about our dads, we'd probably be like, yo, that's fucked up. That's I'd be like, dad. this is an incredibly boring show, Yeah, I would say, if it was about my dad. Unless it was about my dad's time in Italy. In which case, I would be like, I, this is indefensible. <laughs> You're right. He has been canceled. You know, I, I have done, like many people have, I would imagine, again, this is small sample size and inaccurate, but if you, if you begin to Google the names of anyone associated with the Los Angeles Lakers on or around a Sunday night in America, the autofill is right there for you. Sure. Suggesting that many people are doing the same thing. But, you know, just not just the, the big things, like were these people assholes or did they mistreat people? But even smaller things like, oh, what was the timeline there? Who was actually in the meeting? Like what? All of that has been just elided and combined in ways that work for the drama. And frankly, I'm fine with that. I, we were talking about this with a dropout, a show that I generally like, but and I'm sure it, it's also played relatively loose with some facts, but some essential things of the timeline were just a drag to me because I could feel that they were being slavishly accurate. And I'm not as interested in that. So I think it's fine for me and certainly for the entertainment value of the show. I think it's interesting, though, to talk about the ways that the show is being kind of radical with facts at the same time that it's becoming more and more conventional with its storytelling. Like, it it is jaw-dropping to me, the speed with which the show went from Adam McKay, like, basically, you know, doing a, a, a splatter art installation on our small screens to the only memory of his imprint on the show is that John C. Riley is in it. And that every third shot, they cut to a different film stock. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just a TV show about guys with fucked up dads. Yeah. Like, that's pretty wild how quickly that happened. And while I have never been the biggest Adam McKay formalist experimenter fan, uh, I'm sort of a little missing it. Just because it that, I think, is what was going to elevate the show into something special. But without it... It's a show that is just very entertaining, and that has a lot of value, probably, honestly, in the marketplace of ideas, a lot more value. I was really quite charmed by the uh, the Gillian Jacobs, Pat, uh, Adria Brody. Yes. Like, marriage. That was, I just thought it was just like, and Pat Riley and, and Chris Riley are still together. It was just like a very interesting portrait of these two people at a certain point in their lives. The the short story aspect of Winning Time is pretty compelling. The way that they're kind of doing these, like I don't really know that Tark will come back up, you know, in, mm-hmm. in for the rest of the series, frankly. Um, but it just was like such an awesome detour to have. To, let's send Jerry to Vegas. Let's have this crime story underneath of it. Let's have Rory Cochran bald, you know, making he phone calls off the side of the road, and he was awesome in like. Just like, I don't know that he ever, I can't remember if he bit the towel or not, but like he was just, he had a certain, that that bug-eyed kind of Tarkanian uh, look was just awesome. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's getting a little bit more conventional. I think that there's also something kind of soothing about that. You know what I mean? I it becomes a little bit more easy to process. I'll be curious to see, as we've talked about in the last week or so with all these shows coming on, um, what kind of formal tricks people play which which ones we respond to and which ones we kind of find distracting if you're watching three to four series every week. If you're watching Atlanta and mm-hmm. uh, Pachinko and Winning Time and The Dropout and a bunch of other stuff, if you've got like three to five shows you're watching every week, 
like what what are you responding to visually and storytelling wise? Because I, I I think this actually leads into our conversation about Severance quite quite well because Severance is something that I find absolutely captivating on a week to week basis. But I did notice this time, especially with the conclusion of this episode, mm-hmm. a real like the you can see how long the breadcrumb trail is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I just just to put a button on the winning time thing. I like winning time's odds now that it has settled into a we're just going to entertain your ass off for 50 minutes every week and Tracy Letts is going to show up. And like, these are great actors. Um, Gillian Jacobs is just on the show in some scenes with Adrian Brody. That's awesome. And there is, there are so many weird, true things still to come. It's not just, they start winning championships under Pat Riley, um, a body in in the trunk among them. Like that's true that I, I look forward to, I just look forward to the, dra- the dramatization of them. There's great performances. Sometimes that's enough. I am with you on Severance. And I want to be careful how I talk about it because I... I oh, no, I was I, just going to say, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to kind of like reposition that. I want to make sure I'm... Like, I still really am into Severance. Yeah, no, I didn't. I, I, I think that you possibly are more into it than I am at this particular juncture of the season. I get, the reason I want to be careful when I talk about it is because, you know, I am really just stunned not only at the sheer volume of real-life TV shows that we have at the moment, and we've mm-hmm. talked about that over the last few weeks, but that they're all coming out right now. That there wasn't anyone, this is maybe a, a side note to our conversation last week, but, like, Apple has a ton of money, a ton of runway, and they can do what they want. Like, I understand that they want to put the, the, the We Crashed out put Jared Leto and Nan Hathaway like front and center and they're proud of their product. You know what I was but just, I, I, I saw have to be, why is it out right now? Like look at the marketplace. I can't remember where I saw this, but somebody mentioned in response to our Thursday show that it was the Emmy window. I thought the Emmy window ran until the summer, until June. Okay. okay. But I, I might be, I, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. You know, I, it, I should have memorized the Emmy window because that's what bit us in the ass with Talk of the Thrones. Mm. And and if we had only just been at a I different know. time, John Stewart would have been kissing the ring then. I, seriously, um, but like I, so I I bring that up in reference to Severance because Severance is what I want more of. I want and I want more of Severance too. It is an, it is an out there idea. It is an original thought being explored with a lot of care and a lot of resources, and I'm here for it. Um, that said, the balance that was always going to be tricky in a show that's literally about two worlds has been tipping a little bit for me in terms of what we are paying attention to and what the show is interested in and how it's getting us there. Um, it, for me, the story of this season feels draggy, maybe to the point that you're saying, because I'm not sure where to feel. I, I don't know where I am in regards to the Audi world, because Mark S's journey, or Mark Scout as we know him in the outside world, feels a little unformed compared to the freedom fighters that are being that are finally coming online down below if mm-hmm. that makes sense the character of the doula who is now willing to go on dates with him just that bumped me a little bit because he behaved so terribly and so horribly for her to just come running back to him based on i guess one night of sobriety felt I understand why it had to happen plot wise but I was struggling with it in relation to that journey and Look, it's always going to be a balancing act. But for me right now, the innie drama is much more interesting than the Audi drama. And that 
possibly is just a factor of the, uh, of a show that isn't built. And again, this is a good thing. I'm not saying that just to just to curry favor. I genuinely think this is a good thing. This is a show that was built to last multiple seasons, which is what we want. But I wish we were in a different place at this moment in this season. Uh, I would just say that I, I wonder how pervasive the level of... Uh, so when, we, when you're talking about the Audi world, and I think the one thing I bumped up again was something that I thought was a very cool scene, which is when the security from any visits Dylan at home. Uh, in the episode and, and, yeah, and jumps him in his closet that. and kind of like shifts him back and forth between his Innie and Audi world. But like just the technical kind of how do, how do you do that part of it mm-hmm. was a little bit surprising to me and I, I bumped up against that. But the, um, the limited amount that we have seen of the outside world, you know, Mark lives in this housing development that seems to be paid for by Lumen He's living next door to his boss who s- surveils him all the time. You know, when you talk about the doula, I'm kind of like, I don't even know for sure that the doula is not watching Mark right. too for some reason. Do you know what I mean? And uh, so that that part of it, and then I'm starting to get vibes from the, uh, you know, there is this documented, possibly apocryphal uprising that has taken place at some point or like a coup that one floor had against another and there's a painting of it and there are multiple depictions of it that suggest some places it it suggests it's O&D, some places it's it's, uh, refinement. Is it almost like the end of the Matrix 2 where it's like these sort of uprisings are engineered? This rebellion is in and of itself an act of control and I'm kind of fascinated to see all that stuff play out. I love all that stuff. I love all the innie stuff. But I also think that it's clear that the show itself and Dan Erickson and Ben Stiller also love the innie stuff and that the show is almost made from the perspective of the innie world, like that that's where we ought to be paying attention and have our emotional stakes. The moment with Dylan in the closet jumped out at me, not only because it was incredibly cool, it expands our understanding of what's possible here, but Zach Cherry gives a great performance. It's a very brief, intimate, intense performance when he suddenly screams out, "Is, is that my fucking kid? And but the humanity, but he's, but he's also like, "Are we good here?" There, there's that moment where he says to the guy, he seems to say to that guy, "Yes," because he he's holding his kid, though. Yeah, it's a milchek. Yeah, like so his, but his humanity in that line reading is the kind of messiness and emotional truth that sometimes the show, with its intense control, can can lose sight of. You know, like Mark is, and Adam Scott is performing the hell out of it. You know, is in grief and in deep mourning. Um, but he goes to a funeral and he goes to a punk show and someone has died. PD has died, but we don't know PD. You know, we don't really feel or understand it. So our, my, anyway, my emotional alignment is still with the innies. Same thing with Helly, right? Like who killed herself or attempted to kill herself, but is now back typing in the numbers. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a balancing. And there's no ex- expectation that a show will have, especially a show this ambitious, will have figured that out this early. But I, I for me, the the yeah it's just a, it's just I'm looking forward to seeing how it addresses that balance because I want more Audi I want to be more compelled by the Audi because the like the Patricia Arquette stuff and the Milchek stuff I love the performance uh, the uh, Tramel um, I'm forgetting his name but the, the man who plays Milchek I love his performance so much but the Patricia Arquette stuff she's so committed <laughs> she is so so yeah. committed to this bit and this character but I'm finding it pretty extreme you know. Yeah, well, because I it's just like when you have it, it's actually got a very 
broad canvas that they're working from. Like I, I love like the locations that they go to, the the university at the end and the brutalist kind of architecture that everything seems to have in this upstate New York locale. Mm-hmm. But you kind of do wonder how does like the Patricia Arquette character go to Denny's? Like like what yes. what is like how does she go to like get her groceries without people being like, what's it's, up with you? It, it's Tramel Tillman, by the way. I cannot right. I cannot in good faith forget the name of my favorite actor on a TV show on a podcast. Um, yeah, so it's doing a lot. And I keep coming back to this. I want to commend the show and Apple for doing a lot because it pretty stands dope. out. Yeah, we can uh, put a pin in that and let's just wrap up with some Top Chef talk. Yeah. I have a question to start us off with. So okay. before we get into the mechanics of the episode and, and some thoughts on it, what would the equivalent of cooking Indian food for Padma be for you? Like, what is the thing that you feel like you are so either like culturally attached to or you've eaten so much in your life that you would have such like exacting standards over that? Because like the cooking Indian for Padma, like... Oh, well, am I the cook or my Padma? You're Padma. Because, oh, because the reverse of that would be being a TV critic for half a decade than making a TV show. Um, so I can relate, I can relate, um, to, uh, uh, for me, I mean, honestly, and I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. It would probably be you preparing a chicken dish for me. Is that because of me or because you're so good at chicken? I think that just like the power dynamics in terms of chickens in this, it, between the two of us, it's been well established on the record. You know what I mean? Like I, like I, I've given you a hard time about it for so long. I've told you about me messing around with mayo marinades, right? Yeah, and I was supportive. Okay. But I also tried to one-up you. I was like, I mean, yogurt is a, is a superior. But, I, you know, but yeah, I think it would be that. Um, what about for you? I don't know. It would be somebody making Irish tacos for me, probably. <laughs> they are all your children. They are all your children. <laughs> um, this episode was good. Just an elimination challenge. No quick fire. I thought the cooking was cool. I thought the dishes were interesting. I thought the setup was cool. It's a bummer that they don't get just to go to an actual night market. I, I don't, I don't, I feel like in Portland, it was like, we're in a bubble. We're doing the best we can. All these all-stars have come back to like give the show some life and, and support the project and support restaurants and shine a light on what restaurants are going through now. We're, we're going to be somewhat restricted in our movements. We're quarantining, but like, we're going to still put on a great show and they put on a great show for Portland. And then this season, it's not like I expected them to be, you know, vaxxed and relaxed and we're mask free and we're just, we're, we're out at like a Houston Cougars game. But it is kind of, it is striking that they are in this city, that they obviously have an awareness of the culinary moment in Houston that's happening mm-hmm. with all these different communities cooking amazing food in all these disparate places. And the thing that they have to do is set up a night market in the quick fire studio. I, I mean, also shout out to filming in Texas because one of my favorite things to do this season is if you just randomly hit pause while they're shopping in Whole it's Foods. Like no one else in Whole Foods is wearing a mask. The only people wearing face coverings of any kind are the contestants of Top Chef. And there's yeah. just other people just like, out buying bananas, watching, looking at them like, what's up with these weirdos? Last night I was watching Arizona TCU in the NCAA tournament. And for some reason, all the cheerleaders were wearing masks. And it yeah. was like, I was like, first of all, <laughs> when is the last time an Arizona cheerleader has worn a mask? Seriously. Yeah, not, I mean, Arizona 
student athletes in general are not famously known for their like concern about safety, right? Like that's just kind of a thing. It's a party. <laughs> no, party I mean, I'm not university. even. It's not even a value judgment. I was just more like, just like we could stop this, guys. Like they had some nice. They were they were very like sparkly masks, like they were cool masks or whatever. But like I was just like, you, you know, no one else in this arena or the players are wearing masks right now. I do think. But I'm with you, and I've been struggling how to articulate this. I just get the feeling from these first three episodes that the show is either, maybe it's just kind of uh, just still kind of having a hangover from the intensity of the last two seasons. But two seasons ago, All Star season in California, not only was it incredible because it was an All Stars so season, good. which is always the best, but you and I at the time, and especially once the pandemic started to take over our actual lives, couldn't believe what a brilliant job they did celebrating Los Angeles as a place. Mm-hmm. Like, they were out in these streets in the just, best way I've seen the show do. Just elbow then, to elbow with Nancy Silverman. Then you have the, the the next season, which was the pandemic season, and they zagged the other way and created incredibly compelling television in a bubble. And it was to be lauded. I mean, it was an amazing season right up until the very last 10 seconds. Then we just, we don't talk about those. This season, I feel like they were caught in between of those extremes, right? And I and, and we don't actually know what went into the production. Were they are they burned out? Was it just too challenging? But it's a little. It's sort of stuck in the uncanny valley between those two extremes, where you're in it a place. It also might like that to they're see shooting them in, in Houston, and, not fully and there. Houston is holy shit. Houston is humid and hot and huge. Yeah, and huge and difficult to navigate the logistics of anyway. So all of that is factoring into it. Um, I did want to. And, but the show is the show, and um, I think it's worth paying attention to. The, the great Houston restaurant critic, Allison Cook, has been writing a lot about the show. And so mm-hmm. people that we don't know as significant food figures are sprinkled throughout these episodes already. They have clearly done their research, and they've reached out to the right people I think in, in ways that we seasons, might not appreciate. those characters come to life a little bit more because yeah. we see them in their element. And I think we that's a great point. And I think that hopefully that's still to come. I also think Top Chef is doing that Top Chef thing where week one, I'm like, I don't understand who any of these randos are. Week three, I'm like, I would take a bullet for Demar. Right. Like, so it, it it's happening. Like, there are Top Chef champions already here in this group that we'll be excited to spend more time with. All that said, Chris, we do have to pivot, and I we need to talk about Sam. Okay, now S- Sam Alou. Yeah. You you and I, we don't know this guy personally. Um, we have no judgment about him in the world as a cook or as a human being. He worked for Dave Chang, who's a buddy of us in the podcast. Um, so he's got to have the chops. I did something I've almost never done, which is I rewatched large portions of this episode just to try to track. Because the first time I was like, I think maybe he's unwell. Like maybe they needed to do an intervention because he was acting so insane at the end. I watched it a second time. And actually what I think we see here is one of the first pure kamikaze runs in the history of Top Chef. Because if you watch the moment when he realizes he did not pack the potatoes for his potato dish, potatoes which, despite it, he kept saying they were boiling on the stove, reader, listener, there were no bubbles in they those were just pots. Sitting they in were water. not boiling. Yeah, they were soaking. They, that was your chicken marinade, I believe, that he had repurposed um, for that moment. He, from that moment, his entire demeanor and personality changes, and he's like, I'm done. And he he knew he was done and he knew he was off the show. And everything after that moment has to be read in that way because when he starts talking truly like an insane person or a person on drugs about the joy of discovering a man grilling potatoes, (laughs) 
I think everyone correctly points out to him that that's a terrible idea and you can't cook a potato that way. Right. It is, it, you, you could put it in foil with a little oil and liquid and let it steam like an oven would. And maybe he didn't feel he had time to do that. Or he was just on a kamikaze run because there's no other explanation for it. He knew he was going home and just did the thing that we often criticize people for not doing, but has no one to my mind has ever done, which is when he's on the chopping block, he didn't just say, yeah, I forgot. He pretended that he always meant for it well, to go Well, that can't way. come up in the football challenge where I think they asked Stephanie why she didn't put any meat in her Brazilian stew. <laughs> right, and, she's like, I prefer not and to. And she was like, I, and then Brooke was like, well, that she has to say that. Like, we've all been there where you just have to come up with a reason why you did this thing that was just basically a screw up. But, but she actually did intend to do it. She yeah, talked we, about like, it. Like, look, I, I, I think Stephanie and Sam, I'm sure, like... Would make amazing food, but it's it's been a while since I've seen two more obvious people exit the show this quickly. I, I think there's a case to be made that if Sam had just simply removed the potato from his potato dish, had some rice or some grain and served his curry and said, there was a mishap, but I wanted you to taste the flavors I was developing, then Buddha goes home. Genuinely, I think that's possible. And Buddha did the the fried the pastry. fried puff pastry and made right. like a soggy, uncooked. Sweet after after his, his sort of his mentor was like, "Whatever you do, don't fry this." Exactly, right. and I think that in Top Chef history, if you give them something decent, you can skate by. But if you intentionally say, "I've made a potato dish with an inedible potato," you're asking to go home. And like, he fell on his sword that way. And then what's super weird to me was, you didn't watch Last Chance Kitchen. I did, I got a chance to see it. He walks into Last Chance Kitchen, um, and of course it's a potato uh, challenge, and continues to behave really wildly. And it's just like, I'm just going to cook six potatoes six different ways, including a sauce of potatoes and In serve like it to Tom. In like 10 right? Yeah. And then, spoiler, sorry, he is eliminated again. And this time you see, like, I really admired at the end of the actual episode when he was just like, I have learned. This is positive. You know, sometimes you have to like fake it to make it. Like that's actually admirable behavior, I think. But in this one, you kind of see like into his soul when he's just like, I think Tom has made an error because he cannot see my vision. Where I was like, that's dope. I, I think he needs a timeout. Like, I feel like, I feel like, I don't know, maybe there's some overlap here in the Sam extended universe and the Nick Pizzolatto reading the Hollywood Reporter about HBO moving on without him. Like, I feel like there's some overlap here, perhaps in the cultural foundation of our podcast. It was wild. You mentioned Damar. Uh, there's not a lot of wire to wire Top Chef victories. Shoda really emerged fast that mm-hmm. I can think of. Damar is going to be there at the end unless something catastrophic happens, right? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a confidence to what he's doing. And just like the thinking that he, I mean, he was, it was surprising to me he wasn't in the top three this week, but being like Japanese food, miso, but with ham hocks, like just the instant distillation of my yeah. personality and also the challenge, that is, that is Dem- champion Demar and stuff. Joe are my two favorites so far. Who, wait, Jamar? Oh, I like Joe. I like yeah. Joe a lot. I also, this is a side note, maybe we can talk about this in future weeks, but, um, there's such an interesting uh, example happening of like how to be 
kind of a clueless, dopey white guy on television in 2022 happening between Mr. Noma, who's like, I'm so confused. Where's the seaweed? Right. And then and Jackson, who can't taste. (laughs) Jackson, who literally cannot taste food, but is just like game to try. And he's just like, I love fuss so much. You know, he's just like, I'm going to put it in a spring roll. Yeah, I just I can't taste it, but I love it. And he's so he's like very goofy about his total um, um, naivete that I find it very charming. And it's interesting to watch the two of them navigate the opposite margins of what the show is at this particular moment. Yeah, it's I, I think that you're right. And like the most seasons start out and you're just like, who are all these people? Like, I can't keep track of 20 people. And there's a bunch where there's and it's like this on Survivor, too, where like in the third episode, they'll finally do a one-on-one with this person who hasn't spoken for three episodes. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, you're still on the island. How about that? You're not bad. <laughs> yeah. It, it'll um, work out. So let's wrap it up there. On Thursday, I believe we're, well, we'll definitely have our interview or my interview with Sue Hugh, who is the uh, creator showrunner of Pachinko, which is probably in the running for my favorite show of the year so far this season. And then we're also got the return of uh, Atlanta. So we've got a stacked show on Thursday. Can't wait to talk to you about that. We were produced as always by Kaya McMullen. Thank you for listening to the Watch Podcast and have a great week. Have a great week, Bransky. You've earned it.